0: Chapter Nine of Memoirs of Madame Vigie Lebrun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. Memoirs of Madame Vigie Lebrun by Elizabeth Louise Vigie Lebrun, translated by Lionel Strachey. Chapter Nine, Catherine the Second. I experienced a great joy when, after breathing frosty air outdoors and air heated by stoves indoors for several months, I witnessed the arrival of summer. I took a great delight in the walks and hastened to enjoy the beautiful surroundings of St. Petersburg. I very often went to the lake of Pergola alone with my Russian manservant to take what I called an air bath. I enjoyed the contemplation of its limpid water which vividly reflected the trees on its banks, and then I would mount to the heights adjacent. On one side the horizon was bounded by the sea, and I could distinguish the sails lit up by the sun. Here a silence reigned that was disturbed only by the song of a thousand birds, or sometimes by the sound of a distant bell. The pure air and the wild picturesque place enchanted me. My faithful Peter, who warmed up my little dinner, or picked flowers of the field for me, made me think of Robinson on his island with Friday. The heat being considerable, I often went with my daughter for early walks on the island of Krestovsky. The extreme point of this island seemed to merge into the sea, on which large vessels were navigating. Sometimes we went there in the evening to see the Russian peasants dance, their national dress being very picturesque. I remember on the subject of the excessive heat often prevailing at st petersburg a certain day in the month of july of some year in which that month was hotter than in italy on this day i saw princess dolgoruki's mother princess bariatinsky who was once as lovely as an angel and whose clever and spontaneous wit rendered her one of the most fascinating women of st petersburg established in her cellar with her lady's companion seated on the bottom step very quietly reading to her from a book, but to return to the island of Kristovsky. Taking a row in a boat one day, we came upon a crowd of men and women all bathing together. We even saw from a distance young men naked on horseback, who were thus bathing with their horses. In any other country one would have been shocked by this, but the Russian people are really primitively ingenious in the winter husband wife and children sleep together on the stove if the stove is not large enough they lie on wooden benches lining their hut wrapped up simply in their sheepskins these good people have kept the customs of the ancient patriarchs a walk which pleased me particularly was one on the island of zelagin which though it had once been a very handsome garden was now deserted however there remain some lovely trees charming avenues a temple surrounded with magnificent weeping willows flowers to please the eye little running streams and bridges after the english fashion in order to enjoy this walk to the full i took a little house opposite on the bank of the neva the advantageous situation of my cottage was combined with pleasing diversion due to the fact that most of the boats of which there was an unceasing procession up and down the river gave me a continuous concert of vocal music or wind instruments the artillery general melissimo lived in a pretty house close to mine and i enjoyed having him for my neighbour since he was the best and most obliging of men as the general had spent much time in turkey his house was a model of oriental comfort and luxury. There was a bathroom lighted from above, in the middle of which was a basin large enough to hold a dozen people. One went down into the water by steps. Linen to be used for drying the body after bathing was hung on a golden balustrade circling the basin, and consisted of large pieces of Indian mull worked at the bottom in flowers and gold so that the weight of this embroidery caused the mole to adhere to the skin which appeared to me an elaborate refinement round the room ran a broad divan on which one could stretch oneself and rest after taking a bath and one of the doors opened from a sweet little sitting room this sitting room again overlooked an odorous flower bed and some of the stems grew to the height of the window It was in this room that the general gave us a breakfast of fruits, cream cheese, and excellent mocha coffee, on all of which my daughter regaled herself royally. Another time he asked us to a very good dinner and had it served under a Turkish tent brought back from one of his journeys. The tent was put up on the lawn facing the house. There were twelve of us all seated by the table on splendid divans. We were served with delicious fruits at dessert, The whole dinner was quite Asiatic, and the general's courtesy added to the savour of all the good things. I wish, however, that he had omitted firing off cannon shots in our immediate proximity, just as we were sitting down at table. But I was informed that such was the custom with all generals. I took my little house on the Neva for one summer only. The next, young Count Stroganoff lent me one at Kamenstrov, where I was very well suited. Every morning I walked alone in a neighboring wood, and passed my evenings with Countess Golovin, my neighbor. There I met young Prince Beriatinsky, Princess Tarrant, and various other congenial people. We would chat or have readings until supper-time. In fact, time was speeding by for me in the most agreeable manner. The Russian people lived very happily under the rule of Catherine by great and lowly have i heard the name of her blessed to whom the nation owed so much glory and so much well-being i do not speak of the conquests by which the national vanity was so prodigiously flattered but of the real lasting good that this empress did her people during the space of the thirty-four years she reigned her beneficent genius fathered or furthered all that was useful all that was grand she erected an immortal monument to Peter the First. She built two hundred and thirty seven towns in stone, saying that wooden villages cost much more because they burn down so often. She covered the sea with her fleets. She established everywhere manufactories and banks, highly propitious to the commerce of Saint Petersburg, Moscow, and Tobolsk. She granted new privileges to the academy she founded schools in all the towns and the country districts she dug canals built granite quays gave a legal code instituted an asylum for foundlings and finally introduced into her empire the boon of vaccination adopted by the russians solely through her mighty will and for the public encouragement was the first to be inoculated catherine herself was the source of all these blessings for she never allowed anyone else real authority she dictated her own dispatches to her ministers who in effect were but her secretaries i am much annoyed that the duchess d'Abrantes, who has recently published a work on catherine the second has either not read what the prince de ligny and the comte de Segur have written or has not given credence to those irrefutable witnesses if she had she would have more justly appreciated and admired the qualities distinguishing that great empress considering her as a ruler and she would have paid more respect to the memory of a woman in whom our sex ought to take pride for so many reasons catherine the second loved everything that was magnificent in the arts at the hermitage she built a set of rooms corresponding to certain rooms in the vatican and had copies made of the fifty pictures by raphael adorning those rooms she enriched the academy of fine arts with plaster casts of the finest ancient statues and with a large number of paintings by various masters the hermitage which she had founded and erected quite near her palace was a model of good taste in every respect and made the clumsy architecture of the imperial palace at st petersburg appear to worse advantage than ever by the contrast it is well known that she wrote french with great facility in the library at st petersburg i saw the original manuscript of the legal code she gave the russians written entirely in her own hand and in the french language her style i was told was elegant and very concise and this reminds me of an instance of her laconic manner of expression which seems to me quite delightful when General Suvaroff had won the Battle of Warsaw, Catherine at once sent him a messenger, and this messenger brought the fortunate victor nothing but an envelope on which she had written with her own hand to Marshal Suvaroff. This woman, whose power was so great, was at home the simplest and least exacting of women. She rose at five in the morning, lit her fire, and then made her coffee herself. It was even said that, one day, having lit the fire without being aware that the sweeper had climbed up the chimney, the sweeper began to swear at her, and to shower the coarsest revilements upon her, believing he was speaking to a stove-lighter. The empress hastened to extinguish the fire, though not without laughing heartily at having been thus treated. After breakfast the empress wrote her letters and prepared her dispatches, remaining in seclusion until nine o'clock she then rang for her men-servants who sometimes did not answer her bell one day for instance impatient at waiting she opened the door of the room they were in and finding them settled down at a game of cards she asked them why they did not come when she rang thereupon one of them calmly replied that they wanted to finish their game and so they did on another occasion the comtesse bruce who was allowed in the empress's apartments at all hours came in one morning to find her alone at her toilette. Your Majesty seems to be without assistance, said the Countess. How can I help it? answered the Empress. My maids all went off. I was trying on a dress which fitted so badly that I lost my temper over it, and so they left me to myself. Not one of them stayed, not even Raynette, my head maid, and I am waiting for them to cool off in the evening catherine would gather about her some of the people of her court she liked best she sent for her grandchildren and blind man's bluff hunt the slipper and other games were played until ten o'clock when her majesty went to bed princess dolgoruki who was among the favored often told me with what good spirits and jollity the empress enlivened these gatherings comte steckelberg and the comte de Segur were invited to catherine's small parties When she broke with France and dismissed the Comte de Ségur, the French ambassador, she expressed deep regret at losing him. But, she added, I am an autocrat. Everyone to his trade. Many persons have attributed Catherine's death to the keen sorrow brought her by the failure of the marriage arranged between her granddaughter, the Duchess Alexandrina, and the King of Sweden. That prince arrived at St. Petersburg with his uncle, the Duke of Sudermania, in August 1796. He was only seventeen years old, but his tall figure and his proud and noble bearing made him respected in spite of his youth. Having been very carefully brought up, he showed a most unusual politeness. The princess, whom he had come to marry, and who was fourteen, was lovely as an angel, and he speedily fell deeply in love with her i remember that when he came to my house to see the portrait i had done of his bride-elect he looked at it with such rapt attention that his hat fell from his hand the empress wished for this marriage more than anything but she insisted that her granddaughter should have a chapel and clergy of her own religion in the palace at stockholm but the young king all his love for the young duchess alexandrina notwithstanding would not consent to anything that would violate the laws of his country. Knowing that Catherine had sent for the patriarch to pronounce the betrothal after a ball in the evening, the king remained absent from the ball, despite M. de Markov's repeated calls urging him to come. I was then doing the portrait of Comte Diedrichstein. We went to my window several times to see if the young king would yield and go to the ball, but he did not. In the end, according to what Princess Dolgoruki told me, when everyone was assembled, the Empress half-opened the door of her room and said in a very subdued voice, Ladies, there will be no ball tonight. The King of Sweden and the Duke of Sudermanya left St. Petersburg the next morning. Whether or no it was the grief arising from this occurrence that cut short the days of Catherine, Russia was soon to lose her. THE SUNDAY PRECEDING HER DEATH, I WENT TO HER MAJESTY AFTER CHURCH TO PRESENT HER WITH THE PORTRAIT THAT I HAD MADE OF THE GRAND Duchess ELIZABETH. SHE CONGRATULATED ME UPON MY WORK, AND THEN SAID, THEY INSIST THAT YOU MUST TAKE MY PORTRAIT. I AM VERY OLD, BUT STILL, AS THEY ALL WISH IT, I WILL GIVE YOU THE FIRST SITTING THIS DAY WEEK. THE FOLLOWING THURSDAY SHE DID NOT RING AT NINE O'CLOCK, AS WAS HER WONT. THE SERVANTS WAITED UNTIL TEN O'CLOCK and even a little later at last the headmaid went in not seeing the empress in her room she went to the clothes closet and no sooner did she open the door than Catherine's body fell upon the floor it was impossible to discover at what hour the apoplectic shock had touched her however her pulse was still beating and hope was not entirely given up Never in my days did I see such lively alarm spread so generally. For my part I was so seized with pain and terror when apprised of the dreadful tidings that my convalescing daughter, perceiving my state of prostration, became again ill. After dinner I hastened to Princess Dolgorukis, whither Comte Cobenzel brought us the news every ten minutes from the palace. Our anxiety continued to grow and was unbearable for everybody, since not only did the nation worship Catherine, but it had an awful dread of being governed by Paul. Toward evening, Paul arrived from a place near St. Petersburg, where he lived most of the time. When he saw his mother lying senseless, nature, for a moment, asserted her rights. He approached the Empress, kissed her hand, and shed some tears catherine the second finally expired at nine o'clock on the evening of november seventeen ninety-six. Comte Cobenzel, who saw her breathe her last sigh at once came to inform us that she had ceased to live i confess that i did not leave princess dolgoruki's devoid of fear in view of the general talk as to a probable revolution against paul the immense mob i saw on my way home in the palace square by no means tended to comfort me. Nevertheless, all those people were so quiet that I soon concluded, and rightly, we had nothing to fear for the moment. The next morning the populace gathered again at the same place, giving vent to its grief under Catherine's windows in heartrending cries. Old men and young, as well as children, called to their Matusha, little mother, and between their sobs, lamented that they had lost everything this day was the more depressing as it augured so sadly for the prince succeeding to the throne the empress's body was exposed six weeks in a large room at the palace lit up day and night and gorgeously decorated catherine was laid out on a bed of state and surrounded by shields bearing the arms of all the towns in the empire her face was uncovered her beautiful hand resting on the bed, all the ladies, of whom some took turn in watching by the body, bent to kiss that hand, or pretended to. I, who had never kissed it in her lifetime, did not dare to kiss it now, and even avoided looking at Catherine's face, which would have left too bad an impression on my memory. After his mother's death, Paul at once had his father Peter disinterred. He had been buried for thirty-five years in the convent of Alexander Nevsky. Nothing was found in the coffin but bones and a sleeve of Peter's uniform. Paul desired the same honors rendered to these remains as to Catherine's. He had them exhibited in the middle of the church at Kazan. The watch service was performed by old officers, friends of Peter the Third, whom his son had pressed to come, and whom he loaded with honors. THE DAY OF THE FUNERAL HAVING ARRIVED, PETER THE THIRD'S COFFIN, ON WHICH HIS SON HAD PLACED A CROWN, WAS PUT WITH GREAT CEREMONY BESIDE CATHERINE'S, AND BOTH WERE CONVEYED TO THE CITADEL, PETER'S PRECEDING, IT BEING PAUL'S WISH TO HUMBLE HIS MOTHER'S ASHES. I SAW THE MARVELOUS PROCESSION FROM MY WINDOW AS ONE SEES A PLAY FROM A BOX IN THE THEATER before the emperor's coffin rode a horseman of the guard, clad from top to toe in golden armor. But the man riding in front of the empress's coffin wore only steel armor. The murderers of Peter III were, by order of his son, obliged to act as pallbearers. The new emperor walked in the procession on foot, bareheaded, with his wife and the whole court, which was very numerous, and attired in deep mourning the women wore long trains and enormous black veils they were obliged to walk in the snow at a very low temperature from the palace to the fortress where russia's sovereigns were laid to rest a long distance on the other side of the neva mourning was ordered for six months the women's hair was brushed back and their headgear came to a point on the forehead which did not improve their looks at all but this slight inconvenience was insignificant compared to the deep anxiety to which the empress's death gave rise throughout the whole empire. End of chapter nine recording by james k white. Chula Vista.